Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Rodriguez, a PhD candidate in history at Vanderbilt University. Today, I'll talk to Brendan Goff, an assistant professor of history at at the New College of Florida, about his book, Rotary International and the Selling of American Capitalism, which was just published by Harvard University Press. Goff's monograph traces the history of Rotary International from its origins in Chicago in 1905 to its rapid growth during the first four decades of the 20th century. In doing so, Goff places U.S. power at the center of his analysis. He argues that Rotary International was able to succeed where Wilsonian internationalism wasn't by strategically distancing itself from the state. Rotarians advanced their own civic internationalism that emphasized the organization's nonprofit status, identity as a non-governmental organization, and commitment to the community-minded principle of service above self. This version of internationalism and the rhetoric that supported it allowed Rotary International to deflect criticisms of mere boosterism or intervention by other means. Goff's nuanced and critical analysis of Rotary International's history provides a new way of thinking about the role of Midwestern cities in the expansion of U.S. capital and consumer culture abroad, the many inflections of interwar internationalism, and the use of racialized power in creating and structuring connections between business people in the United States, and the rest of the world. Welcome to the show, Brendan. Thank you, Stephen. Very happy to be here. Um, I want to start with a question about how you came to this uh, project. Uh, In two sentences or less? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, I I guess in some sense, every dissertation and book project is autobiographical in, in one form to some degree or another, one form or another. That certainly was the case with me. Um, I I mentioned this in the acknowledgments that um, I never heard of Rotary Clubs or Rotary International, like a lot of people, I, I suppose, uh, until a friend of a friend in Pittsburgh many back in the early 90s said, hey, you should look into their ambassadorial scholarships. Uh, I understand you want to go abroad, and et cetera. And I thought, okay. And so I looked into it and um, applied, and I didn't think I had a whole lot of chance at that, but lo and behold – I was able to get a one-year scholarship through Rotary's ambassadorial scholarship program to uh, the University of Glasgow, where I studied for a year, and I did an MPhil in philosophy. And it was a transformative experience in a lot of ways. I mean, I was just kind of a simple, kind of basically working-class kid from Pittsburgh who got to go abroad. But I think what really happened is that several years later, I went, and you and I talked about this already a little bit, but... Mm-hmm. I, I decided to go abroad again, kind of on my own. Hmm. Uh, and so in late in the late 90s, 96 to 99, I was in Spain teaching English um, as a second language to a lot of Spaniards and actually to a lot of Europeans and Latin Americans, et cetera, who happened to be in Madrid, a very cosmopolitan city. And I realized as I was teaching all these classes, the, the, um, the constant sense of like of a lot of my students, you know, there's this thing called the United States of America, and I think I know what it's all about, but at the same time, I don't think I know what it's all about, you know, and so they'll sit there and quote chapter and verse from their favorite music or film or something. So it was like, 
it was this, it was as if they were all, you know, engaging whether they liked it or not with the United States and all these many layered ways. And then I was, I realized as I was teaching these classes that, you know, what's going on here? What is this? And I didn't have a language for it. And so that kind of drove my desire to go for a PhD in history and also to study uh, 20th century history and U.S. history in the way that I ended up studying it at Michigan, which was very interdisciplinary and emphasizing, you know, the history of capitalism or what became known as the history of capitalism the, the, from a transnational perspective, from, um, you know, a non-state perspective and, and whenever possible from a non-U.S. perspective as well. So the book kind of in the dissertation project emerged from that, the personal trajectory going into mm-hmm. over the course of the 90s and then the uh, intellectual journey, especially while a grad student at the University of Michigan. So, mm. you know, the book is kind of a an, ex- an expression of all of those multiple, mm. you know, layers at once. Yeah, well, th- thanks for that. I mean, that's really fascinating. Uh, it's It certainly comes across, I think, in the, the book is, you know, coming at this topic from so many different angles. And I think perhaps that's re- right. reflected from the personal experience. Um, a lot of Listeners are probably familiar in some way with Rotary, the kind of familiar logo of Rotary when you're driving into many U.S. Uh, towns. Um, but you know, your book is looking at the growth of Rotary in its first uh, 40 years of its history. Can you begin by giving us a bit of an overview of of what that growth looked like from its founding in Chicago uh, to where you you end the book? Uh, I know that's asking a lot, but it's just kind of a bird's eye view, and then we could talk a little bit about the some of the case studies and what those kind of tell us about the the growth of U.S. power and some of the other uh, topics that you you touch on. Sure. Um, I mean, it, I'll have to kind of paint in broad brush strokes, obviously, but um, in some ways, um, you know, yes, the original Rotary Club is emerges out of Chicago in 1905, which is for anyone who knows the history of Chicago and the Midwest during that period, you know, Chicago is this massive hustling and bustling industrial behemoth uh, in rapid growth. It's also at the height of the, what turns out to be the height of the progressive era during this period. Um, so it has this kind of, it's a mix of um, the the businessmen's progressivism of the period, an emphasis on that, uh, businessmen's, but also um, this, and I try to draw, draw this out in, in the uh, earliest part of the book, in the first chapter, especially that... Um, there's this pressing need, or the, the, the there's a there's a there's a kind of pressing need re- realized among many businessmen, especially these these emerging salaried manager managers and professionals, mm. that capitalism as a kind of way of life, and especially U.S.'s version of capitalism, needs uh, kind of rehabilitation in the, in the in the wake of the you know the Gilded Age, and um, and so in many ways the it, one of the key driving factors in the earliest Rotary clubs, first in Chicago and then later soon thereafter in San Francisco and, and, and elsewhere, a lot of the driving force behind that was the need to kind of um, justify, um, civilize, um, standardize, stabilize, whatever, um, uh, early 20th century capitalism, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in the United States, but then soon around the world. So in many ways, the rapid expansion of, of the Rotary Clubs from 
Chicago in 1905 to San Francisco in 1908, and then very quickly by 1910 and by 1912 throughout all the major U.S. cities. See, that's one of the things that people don't understand about mm-hmm. Rotary. In fact, most Rotarians is that it doesn't start with small town America. It starts in the biggest cities, Chicago, San Francisco, Boston, Philadelphia, New York City, et cetera. And then during uh, the World War I period, then it starts really trickling down to the second, third tier, fourth tier cities, right? Uh, So that's one major kind of revelation or or key component of the nature of Rotary's growth is that it's not small – it taps into – small town America about 10, 15 years later. And it really taps into kind of the ideological um, image of small town America as especially it goes around the world. But it's, you know, it, the first real wave of growth is within the United States and then Canada and Great Britain among major cities. And then, of course, after 1912, uh, or rather 1914, uh, because of World War One. Then the growth pattern for the uh, Rotary uh, starts looking or moving into uh, the Caribbean and Latin America, and then also starting to look more and more across the Pacific um, during the World War I period. And then by 1918, 1919, uh, the, high, the upper echelons of, of Rotary, they're realizing, hey, you know, we could really be moving into Latin America. I mean, they're they're not just realizing that kind of at a theoretical level. They're actually putting into operation plans for growth uh, throughout the Caribbean and Latin America and the Trans-Pacific region, do you see? So um, by 1919, they realized that that's the, these are the, the centers of, of opportunity and growth, a lot e- even more so than small-town America, even as they're also moving into these small towns throughout the 1920s. So there are multiple vectors of growth during the 1910s and 1920s mm. uh, uh, kind of drilling down to the smaller towns at the local level, again, in North America, whatever, uh, the uh, British Isles, but also into the Caribbean, Latin America. Uh, and then after 1918, 1919, rapidly throughout much of Europe mm. uh, as well. And then, um, after 1920, 1921, uh, in Tokyo, which is chapter four of the, of the book, Tokyo, and then by extension, the Japanese Empire. So there's rapid growth in East Asia through Manila, Shanghai, Yokohama, Tokyo, these key port cities. Um, and then chapter six covers the um, the rapid growth of the clubs in much of Asia, Southeast Asia, in, in, in Central Asia, and East Asia. Um Thanks to uh, Jim and Lily and Davidson, uh, kind of setting up clubs, uh, so that by the time you're looking at the, you know, the start of the 1930s, you, you already have Rotary clubs all over the world, uh, from the smallest towns of North America to the largest commercial centers and capital centers in virtually any part of the world, um, other than say, obviously, the Soviet Union, for example. Hmm. Well, thank you. That's a really helpful overview. Um, I want to return to what you were saying at the beginning of that overview about the Rotary's function as kind of rehabilitating uh, capitalism and standardizing right. it and civilizing it. And this this ties into what I was kind of talking about in the introduction, which is one of the core you know ideas that you develop in the book, which is civic internationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, could you first define civic internationalism and talk a, a little bit about uh, how it related to some of the other dominant internationalisms 
of the time? How did the Rotary differ in its approach? And how did it use that kind of rhetoric of civic internationalism as part of its uh, process of, of, of rapidly growing during the time period you just uh, mentioned and those different vectors? Uh, I had a feeling you were going to ask that, <laughs> uh, and I was I was trying to review my my introduction because I had I I thought you were going to ask that. And I was like, how did I handle that question? But I, I mean, fair enough because it's a question that I probably got at every other conference paper in the past fifteen years. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so in one sense, the the emphasis on civic is that um, is that uh, it it's born out of that kind of how can we improve the local community slash city or town that we're in, right? Mm. So it, it it emerges out of that that kind of progressive era <clears throat> vibrancy of of urban reforms and uh, and improvements, right? But um, you know, and I kind of go into this a little bit. <clears throat> excuse me, with um, um, the, when looking at the Chicago part of the story, the origin story, so to speak, of the group, of the organization, where you have women in civic affairs, in uh, uh, civic affairs in, in the city of Chicago, and they're kind of driven by the kind of class of progressive era maternalist reforms. And so um, uh, what's happening is that these businessmen are st- stepping back and saying, well, wait a minute, um, what what is it that businessmen ought uh, ought to be doing on behalf of the city mm. and on behalf of the community as well. So there's a kind of borrowed status uh, occurring, which I kind of go into, I think it's in my, the end of my chapter one, where, you know, uh, the role of women is seen as almost to, uh, seen as um, looking to provide a kind of moral ballast mm. for uh, the, these reform agendas. But at the same time, they're, they're increasingly becoming, the organization is becoming more and more, um, uh, devoted to keeping it as a men's only organization. It started as such formally, and they they there's the constant push for having women to join in different parts, different cities, different countries, etc. So that adjective civic um, is laced heavily with uh, a lot of gendered notions of 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 uh, reformist um, uh, perspectives and reformist uh, agendas that. Um, not just within the city of Chicago, but quite literally anywhere you have a Rotary Club or anywhere you have a business organization that's seeking to improve municipal governance, uh, infrastructure, um, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> that's why I have the adjective civic. Um, and then the, the internationalism, and then a, a key component of that civic also is that notion of, of the service above self and this kind of um, <clears throat> almost a kind of civil religion built around this notion of serving the community, serving the profession, serving uh, your neighbors, etc. And so the language, especially in the first decades, the 1910s and 1920s, is heavily laced with a kind of quasi-religious or even uh, sometimes overtly Christian kind of language, right? Mm. But, you know, it's a period of secularization and that's reflected over time, but it's also reflected by the complexities of this organization going abroad. Right. So um, and so you have the, 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 the um, this these reformist agendas that are especially focused on improving the city and uh, in, in the business community, for example, um, uh, of wherever we're talking about. And then also the gendered uh, ram- uh, uh, the gendered uh, aspects of that. And then also the fact that this is happening at the international level. And it's so this notion of service above self and the service, what I call the service ideology, others have called it that as well. 
that it's a way of talking about international and even transnational cultural exchange, um, informal diplomacy, et cetera, in a way that, that, um, is neutral enough Mm. in, in its references. It doesn't, it doesn't, in theory, at least it doesn't put any one nation or empire, or even again, in theory, any one race, uh, at the center of civilization per se, or uplift per se, even though it's clearly coming out of that progressive era, um, mm. dedication towards uplift and civilization. But do you see it's, so mm. civic internationalism was a phrase that just came to my head over time there. I, I tried looking up the phrase it's used on rare occasion by other historians, you know, um, uh, you know, like in reference to the Roman empire or something like that. Mm. But, um, I, I just use the phrase, uh, it's just, I found it to be the best way to, to capture that, that kind of local civic impulse, as well as the kind of expansive internationalist, um, movement towards peace, cooperation, stability, engagement, etc. which is, I mean, it's, it's a really, um, fascinating story. And so you can imagine how it's similar to, but not the same as missionary societies. It's mm. similar to, but not quite the same as Wilsonianism. In fact, I call it Wilsonianism without the state. Mm-hmm. It's another way of thinking of it. Uh, it's, it's, it's similar to all these other forms of internationalism during the first half of the 20th century. But at the end of the day, it's about businessmen improving and reforming their local cities and their 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 business communities and then making that a kind of international norm you know mm. Mm. so it, it it it's it's emphasizing the local in the international and the ideological and it, what's decentered from all that is the nation state mm. that i want to i want to hit on this on this theme about the, the state um right. so you kind of talk about so there's the kind of rhetorical way in which the rotary um distances itself from the state um, right. it's, it's, uh, nonprofit. It is, uh, yeah, it's, it's not officially affiliated with the state, but then there's also ways in which the very organizational structure of the rotary, uh, identif- tends to identify itself with the city rather than kind of national, uh, national sort of, uh, framing. So could you talk a little bit about the ways in which the rotary was able to make, to distance itself, both kind of rhetorically and then at the level of the institutional structure and how things were handled within the organization on a kind of day-to-day level? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Great question. So um, I think I have one section, I want to say chapter two, you know, at the corner of state and market, right? Hmm. So uh, it's such a large sprawling organization that in some ways it's a bit like the U.S. government, you know, it the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing at any given time. And so in some ways, local clubs and at the district level, for example, which is usually about 25, 50 clubs, maybe a hundred clubs, depending, uh, you might have, um, one set of, of ways of talking about rotary in one nation or region at, at a certain period of time. That's, you know, sometimes in almost in direct contrast to other places, um, it gets tricky. So it's not, it's, it's, it's not a consistent strategy of distancing from the state, it's, it's a, that's why I call it, it's kind of a strategic distancing because mm-hmm. at times, um, especially, and I try to draw this out, like by the early fifties or late forties, early fifties, 
you know, with the Cold War really settling in with within the United States, for example, you know, you're going to see Rotary uh, Club talks that are, you know, focusing on the fact that we have a Cold War that we need to win, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, you'll you'll see, and I think I cover this in the Cuba chapter, for example, uh, with the Havana Rotary Club in the 1920s, with these really complex, um, uh, you know, moments of pageantry for the club where ambassadors and, and official diplomats are in attendance and they'll have these big flag ceremonies, right? Mm. So the nation states are, are not ignored. It's a form of internationalism, not transnationalism when it comes to that. You see mm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. But um, but it's, it's kind of reflecting almost the pageantry of, say, the Olympics or something like that where um, they love to um, – uh, they love to talk about all these nations in the world, et cetera, and then as if they're not privileging any one nation. And yet when push comes to shove, especially, say, for example, by the mid, mid-1930s on, you know, nas- various forms of nationalisms and fascism and so forth really start forcing clubs and members to make a choice or like in the case of the you know Nazi Germany, the, the clubs are formally banned or with the Japanese Empire, they're formally by nineteen thirty-seven hmm. they're formally banned in Japan by September of nineteen forty for obvious reasons. At a certain point, you know, uh these organizations were seen as a foreign entity on our soil kind of thing, right? Hmm. So it it's it, <laughs> It's always a moving target when it comes to the relationship between the states and the markets. And, um, uh, you know, but I think, and this is why I, end up focus, I ended up focusing on the evolution, history and evolution of global capitalism with this book, because that's not, that wasn't really my starting point way back when. Um, you know, the, the common denominator was the evolution of capitalism itself over time. And, um, which was a, a key driver in seeking to keep a distance from the state. But again, when it came to, you know, seeking money from the Department of Defense and ramping up for World War II, which I kind of cover in, in the chapter on Wichita, um, they're, de- they're definitely looking to, towards the, the, the federal government for a source, you know, for military contracts and so forth. Hmm. Um, when it comes to occupation of Japan after World War II, there's a really – and some of that I couldn't even go into, uh, but I came across in my research where, you know, um, uh, Douglas MacArthur was already very familiar with Rotary Clubs because of the Manila Club and uh, one of his top aide-de-camps was Carlos Romolo. And so uh, he was looking towards – looking to um, reinstate the Rotary Clubs in Japan after 1945 because the, this was a known entity to both mm. MacArthur – and a known entity to the Japanese businessmen who had set up these clubs, you know, all over the, throughout the Japanese empire between 1920 and 1940, you see. So suddenly the state is um, something of, of interest and of use to Rotary, as well as from the point of view of the state, Rotary is now of interest to them as well, you see. So it always depends on the time and the context. Yeah, I think that this attention to the kind of strategic nature of it, I think, is is one of my favorite parts of the book. I mean, I th- when I think of some of the some of the earlier work by historians of U.S. foreign relations on NGOs, there mm-hmm. tends to be sometimes an overemphasis on on the kind of non governmental part. But as you you you're very sen- you're very sensitive to the interests of of the U.S. government on the one hand, these NGOs right. and other 
third parties that interact with them. And there are some points, as you have you just mentioned, when they come together for strategic reasons, it's beneficial, perhaps just for financial reasons, but there are other institutional, there are other overlaps. And then other times they they move apart. And so it's constantly changing and one has to be sensitive to those dynamics. Um, and I think that that's done really well throughout the book. Um, Thanks. And then also don't forget, and this was something I yeah. really came across through the archival research was working hand in glove with U.S. corporations, not all U.S. corporations, mm. different, again, context matters, but, um, you know, many of the, of the, of the, of the earliest proponents for getting rotary clubs into Latin America are, you know, uh, Waterman pen company, who knew, mm. you know, national city bank, no surprise there, you know? Um, so it's, it, you, there are a lot of corporations and, and a lot of industries, you know, Pacific mail steamship company was crucial in setting up uh, the first clubs in Manila and um, uh, Yokohama, for example, mm. in Shanghai. And I go into that in the book actually. So, um, so again, it's that, that strategic playing the States, it's at the corner of state and market there, mm. you know, it, at times specific U S corporations, industries and sp- specific, you know, uh, corporate managers at the, at the highest levels are seeking to work through Rotary clubs, or they're just really devoted Rotarians, mm. right? Who just see themselves as setting up a club in another country in, in another city because it just makes sense to them, and they do that because again, they're tapping into pre-existing networks of social and business mm. networks that are already there. That's kind of the thing is it's not like the U.S. Empire is. Mm thing that's just like a big balloon that's increasing over time with more and more air you know and i kind of try i tease that out as best i could in the cuba chapter is that Mm. there are these pre-existing regional and and social business networks that were forged during the uh, during the tail end of the spanish empire and in some ways go bank going back centuries that the um u.s uh industrialists and then by extension u.s rotary clubs are able to tap into and move into. And the Cuban Rotarians are more than happy Hmm. to reciprocate because they have, they see their own interests possibly being served here as well. You know, this is not Hmm. a, um, there's a lot of quid pro quo and and there's, there's a bit of a transactional approach uh, uh, on the part of many sides here, you know? Hmm. Um, But again, context is everything, right? Um, Right. I want to get into some of those kind of case studies that you present. Um, but, sure. but first, I mean, we, you've given us this great overview of of the Rotary's growth and some of the kind of vectors of its growth. And we've been talking about civic internationalism. I want to think a bit about uh, the limitations of the language of civic internationalism and also kind of how it changed over time. And right. uh, it would be great to perhaps ground these in some, some examples uh, from the book. Uh, but... I'm just thinking about you know this language of civic internationalism, it, you know, trying to make capitalism seem sort of less evil, um, more about helping the community um, and you know, service above self mentality. You know, in a lot of places that the U.S. Uh, has interacted with, this probably was hard to convince even local elites who perhaps had a vested interest in uh, in participating with groups like the Rotary. They might have had a hard time selling it within the kind of political environments uh, that they were in. So I was just wondering, what are the limitations of this language? Can you think about cases when it doesn't really work? They don't buy buy it. Cannot. Uh, so it's hard to kind of establish this uh, partnership between the Rotary and uh, 
other you know elites or business people and business people in other nations and trying to convince uh, local politicians to kind of go along with this. Sure, I could give you. I mean, my head's swelling with you know examples right now. Yeah. But um, uh, one that I do cover in the book, for example, is that um, you know the the Rotarians in Havana mm. are quite gung ho uh, about joining. Um, getting their own Rotary Club in 1916. It's the first non-Anglophone Rotary Club. So it's a big to-do for um, especially the U.S. Rotarians uh, that year. But also it was a big, a kind of a big, seen as a big uh, kind of culminating moment for um, the, uh, the, the, the Cubans who were, uh, you know, signing on to, to uh, establish this uh, newfangled uh, civic club called the Rotary Club, right? Uh, but within 10 years, by 1926, you know, there's a period of by the early 1920s, um, and for anyone who knows anything about, you know, Cuban history, there you, you can guess, almost mm-hmm. guess this, but there's a period there between 1918, 1919, but especially going into the 1920s of rather profound disillusionment with not only the U.S. government, but with um, – but with the uh, you know the 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 ups and downs the the severe ups and downs of the you know the sugar market and the mm. sugar prices on on, on um, during uh, this period and um, they tried to um, work through the U.S. Rotary clubs you know which are thousands of clubs at this point by the early 1920s where they come up with a form letter and they get permission from the Chicago headquarters to essentially try and make their case, the, the Havana Rotarians, to um, these thousands of U.S. Rotary clubs uh, in Canada as well, in the in British Empire actually, but especially U.S. clubs. And um, their belief is that they, you know, this organization can serve in the way that it has, that it has effectively kind of claimed to serve, which is a kind of middle ground a kind of a parliament of businessmen was a, a phrase from that period mm-hmm. that they used. And so they made their case The you know, the form letters went out, et cetera. And they had some success making their case among all these, these clubs and all their members. But, it, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the senators and congressmen from the sugar producing states of Louisiana, Michigan, Colorado, California, kind of had more influence on the ultimate, you know, tariff, policies of the U.S. during that period and at severe at the severe expense of the Cubans. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of period of, of rather, you know, rather severe um, disillusionment experienced by the Cubans already by the early 1920s. Uh, and then that just gets worse over time, as you can imagine. So in many ways, the history of the Havana Rotary Club was a kind of microcosm of the Platt Amendment, right, which mm-hmm. is, again, why that that chapter is called Under the Shadow of Rotary and, you know, referencing, you know, under the shadow of Platt. Hmm. So that would be an example, for example, uh, in, uh, in some ways of kind of what you're getting at where, you know, these, these, these rather broad uplifting um, promises of made through civic internationalism, when push came to shove, when it came to, you know, the ins and outs of U.S. tariff policy going into the 1920s, well, guess what, you know, um, it, it, it failed to have the influence that it, that it promised, you know, hmm. uh, there are other examples I give with the Havana Rotarians, but, uh, that's probably, I think one of the most salient at kind of the international level. Another right. quick example comes to mind is say Turkey. Um, they tried very hard through, uh, Jim Davidson, who was kind of the quote Marco Polo of Rotary between 1928 and 1931. He, 
he and his wife and daughter traveled from um, uh, Prague. They started in Prague um, and uh, and then started to, with the goal of connecting Rotary clubs with between Istanbul and, and Athens, Alexandria, Cairo, Jerusalem, all the way across through Central Asia, South Asia, into Southeast Asia, and then into uh, East Asia. So the goal was to spend several years setting up these clubs so that there's kind of this unbroken chain of rotary clubs connecting the world. Right. Hmm. Uh, so, um, Istanbul was one of the, was the first place that the Jim Davidson goes into this kind of, um, frontier context where there's no rotary club. They never heard of it. You know, Turkey itself is this newly hatched, modernizing, secularizing society. And it looked like he, he had it all figured out and they were going to have a club set up in Ankara and then lo and behold, it got shot down because this early government, this new government saw Rotary as they got confused by the name Rotary International and thought it had something to do with, you know, Communist International. <laughs> they completely, I mean, they just, <laughs> you couldn't be farther from Communist International. But in their minds, they it didn't make sense to them what this organization was about. They didn't trust it and it was deemed a kind of foreign organization. And so Ankara ended up not having or the, the first Rotary Club in Turkey ended up being in Ankara in 1955, right? So it's kind of funny and sad at the same time to, to read how he's – Jim Davidson is speaking one kind of modern business language in yeah. his world, and it's not quite resonating and making sense with – you know, these, these, uh, mid-level administrators and, uh, you know, businessmen in, uh, what is newly called Istanbul at that point. Right. Right. So that would be an example of a bit. All of chapter six is Jim running into very similar scenarios between Cairo, Alexandria, and effectively we're kind of operating much of that time throughout the British Imperium, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I want to ask actually, that's, that's a really fascinating part. I mean, we were talking earlier about the kind of the way that the Rotary relied upon existing networks. In some cases, yeah. those were sort of business networks. Other cases, the, in this context, they were imperial networks. That's so right. could you just talk a little bit about uh, about that, how the Rotary was drawing on these uh, existing imperial commercial uh, n- networks to make it easier to kind of expand and to uh, establish relationships uh, with with you know local business people uh, in Asia or in Cairo, uh, yeah, yeah, right. Um, and I, I don't think I think I might have missed this during my dissertation phase, but it really when I when I really went back during kind of the rewrite for the for the book is that for the 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 story of Jim and Lillian Davidson setting up these clubs, Jim was setting up the clubs, and then Lillian was kind of uh, serial serializing their travels through Asia. Mm. Uh, writing back is almost like a basically a syndicated columnist about their travels and so forth and writing in the kind of travelogue mode of the period, like, you know, as if she were writing for National Geographic. And um, so it it ended up, they ended up kind of um, serving as de facto cultural ambassadors for Rotary. And, and, and he was understood as not simply a U.S. born businessman from Canada traveling through the British empire. He, hmm. the, the complex layers of his own history, biography and identities helped, um, push the, the notion of, uh, uh, of, of him representing this international institution and international business 
first and foremost, and it was uh, kind of almost uh, ancillary that he happened to have been a U.S. born um, citizen who then became a Canadian businessman and citizen, right? Hmm. So uh, as a result, um, I mean, and Jim had, Jim Davidson had a long history and background working as a consular agent in Shanghai for the United States government uh, before these travels. And I go into that in, in chapter six, but the point is that, that um, uh, this was a guy who was well-suited for kind of operating within the, the, the ch- constant changing flux of the British empire and British, uh, British, inter- British international business connections, which were not the same as the U S for example. Mm. Um, and so there were ways and he, over time, he kind of goes into this, um, how do I disarm, uh, um, these potential recruits for a rotary club in say, you know, Bombay, you know, what's now Mumbai, mm. but, um, um, how can I present myself as, uh, not just an extension of the British empire, but at the same time, or the U S the United States government, uh, but at the same time familiar with the British Empire. So, you know, the way he would speak and interact with someone who was formerly part of the British Empire and its administration would be one way. And then the way he would interact with and speak with and try to recruit, you know, uh, n- n- uh, someone who was native to Mumbai, someone who was native mm-hmm. to the Federated Malay States, someone who was native to, you know, these these different cities and in, in, in parts of the British Empire – he would he so he was he learned how to speak multiple in multiple registers if that makes yeah, sense yeah. especially when it came to international business in ways that that um, uh, showed awareness of the British Imperium in a kind of respect for it but at the same time with a realization that what he's doing here is something new and something that doesn't necessarily align with the interests of the British Empire per se right? yeah. Yeah, but uh, but that said, you know, uh, the first um, non-U.S. Um, or not the first British uh, head of Rotary International was Sidney Pascal in the late oh, I forget the year 1929 1930, um, who then travels the world um, as you know this the Rotary International's international president. So he's a kind of effectively a diplomat, but at the same time, and he could m- move through the British. Imperium of the uh, of of 1930, um, effectively as if he were a British administrator, but he but he was mm-hmm. moving under the guise of being a, the head of Rotary International. So he was seen again as this kind of neutral mm. entity, yeah. or at least uh, he could be seen a certain way from the Brit- those who were in direct support of the British Empire, and then also for those who were kind of you know chafing against the British Empire and looking for something new, they could. They could look at Jim Davidson, they could look at Sidney Pascal, and they could look at the formation of the, this new local Rotary Club as something that was not something that was not beholden to the British Empire in British ways of doing business. Do you see? Yeah. Well, it, it's I mean, it's really fascinating to see the cases when uh, Rotarians are able to really successfully adapt to local circumstances, mm-hmm. build on existing imperial networks, right. you know, to, to ultimately uh, spread spread. Rotary. But then there are cases, and this is getting back to the civic internationalism bit, where I think the there are some certain kind of like hard limits in their ability, I think, to adapt. And I'm right. thinking specifically of when you're talking about, you know, this, the, the book is obviously very focused on on race and how that uh, structures some of the hierarchies within 
within the rotary. And as you note in the introduction somewhere that, that as you say, the, the more vexing racial differences were in any given time and place, the more silent was, was the rotary. Yep. Um, uh, could we talk about cases when the kind of racial uh, beliefs of some Rotarians and the racial hierarchy that they kind of had in mind really was counterproductive in some ways to their this mission that they had, at least this uh, expressed mission of becoming this great international organization. So kind of worth where they weren't able to be as, as flexible as they were in the kind of Jim Davidson cases that you outline. I think yeah. of the Haiti example, but... Right. Yeah. I figured that's what you're getting at. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, again, the, these were, these were materials I was coming across during the dissertation phase that I was able to kind of indicate and talk about to some degree in the dissertation, but I wasn't, it, it took some years and some time after the dissertation to kind of, um, do some more archival work and some a little bit more theoretical work to say, okay, this is what's really going on here. Because what I was Mm -hmm. getting at was what I was seeing uh, more and more in the Haiti example is, is the most poignant example of it. So that's why I go into in some detail in chapter two is the, the the kind of the uh, the connective tissues of whiteness for lack of a better term in, in the context of international business and transnational cultural exchange, you know? Um, And, and so, you know, here, here you have all these U.S. Rotary clubs uh, holding all these minstrel shows, for example. I mean, for decades, right? Night from the 1910s through, in some cases, up to the 1960s, and they'll hold these minstrel shows um, to raise money for local community projects, right? And I didn't even, I, I, I didn't even include that in my dissertation, for for example, because I'd written some seminar papers, uh, seminar papers on it. But I didn't see how I could connect that to the bigger story of, you know, Rotary at the international level. And it wasn't until I started looking at um, the push for uh, setting up um, a a Rotary club in Port-au-Prince, Haiti in the early 1920s when I started – when I started – really started being able to connect the dots between, you know, the the, the Jim Crow realities of U.S. Rotary clubs and those, you know – uh, the, the rest of, of the United States and the, the rest of the U.S. Rotary Clubs either directly or tacitly supporting, uh, the, you know, the racial boundaries uh, behind that. Uh, and it really came out with um, the, um, you know, the, like the sugar company, the, um, what was it called? Um, the Haitian Sugar Company. I'm blanking on the name right now. Hmm. Uh, Hab, Hab, Hasco. Um, so you have major... Uh, corporations uh, looking to set up a, a rotary club in Port-au-Prince um, and they're looking and, and to establish this club in the early night, like 1920, 21, 22. And in doing that, they're trying to bring in naturally as they do on almost every other uh, city is to bring in kind of their, their, what they consider to be the natural business leaders, the most important business leaders of the city slash nation, since it's the capital city, Right. So they're looking to do in, in Port-au-Prince in, say, 1920-21 what they did in Havana in 1916, right? Or Mexico City hmm. soon thereafter, or Buenos Aires, or Montevideo, or wherever. Um, and it looked like it was going to be um, follow the same uh, kind of um, route to success and formal establishment of a club and formal acceptance of its of its charter and so forth. And then they hit a snag with the um, – 
what at the time was called the Foreign Service or the uh, Foreign Extension Committee. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and so you had some of the highest levels of, of Rotary at the time saying, wait a minute, let's step back. Should we have a Rotary Club in, in, in Haiti? And then others, sim- uh, sim- similar uh, 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 levels, highest levels of, of Rotary stepping back at the same time in the same year saying, should we have a Rotary Club in Tokyo and in Japan? Because mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're not a Christian civilization. We don't think they're ready for, for this slash us. Right. Mm. Uh, and so I kind of go into this in chapter two, because Tokyo goes in one direction and gets the charter membership and joke in Tokyo and Japan becomes a major epicenter for growth for Rotary from 1920 on. Whereas the Port-au-Prince uh, story ends up being uh, a club that that's shot down. And I don't think uh, I forget the exact year. Um, that there's not a port a rotary club in Port-au-Prince until I think 1961 or something. Mm. Um, so what went, what happened here, right? Mm. Why did Tokyo go, Tokyo and the Japanese empire go in one direction and, and became seen as this kind of, uh, you know, uh, point of celebration and what I call the exotic peers of, of rotary international. Look how great rotary is and how expansive and inclusive this, mm. this organization is and how easily and quickly we were able to, established clubs, not just in Tokyo and Yokohama, but throughout the entire Japanese empire. And then at the same time, within the Caribbean, for example, or for that matter, within Mexico and Latin America, they're drawing the color line and they're, they're looking to maintain it as best they can. And, uh, it's a real set of, uh, it's, it's, there's some real tensions and, and, and debates within the organization because you have many others pushing back and saying, you know, we have all these broad claims, uh, within our, you know, the way we talk about international peace and cooperation, and yet here we are saying we cannot allow um, uh, uh, men of African descent into our clubs because th- therefore they'd have the right to go to to go into the United States and theoretically go to any club anywhere in the country and rub shoulders they and their wives at um, you know uh, social events, and that was the real concern was you know the 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 intimacy of bumping into people. Um, at these social events, at these conferences, uh, and and that was their big concern. It wasn't so much that you know, oh, the club can can stay down there. The the fear was that uh, once they become a, an official member of a club anywhere in the world, they effectively have a kind of passport for going into any club in the world, hmm. right? And and they that was just simply inconceivable for uh, especially uh, as you can imagine. Um, uh, Rotarians in the highest levels who are coming hailing from Jim Crow cities in particular. Um, so this all kind of came out in the post dissertation research phase, and um, uh, so yeah, it's yeah. and so again, it's trying to kind of identify and and draw out, you know, connect the dots of these kind of connected tissues of whiteness, for lack of a better phrase, yeah. um, and and it's embedded within this notion, I think or at least I try to make the case that it's embedded within this notion of, uh, uh, of, um, it's not my idea of, of racial capitalism, but it's mm. a different, it's a multi-layered form of racial capitalism, right? Because you have U S corporations pushing for the inclusion of high level Haitians in the rotary club. And then a mm. pushback from even Canadian and British Rotarians saying, you know, it's, you know, it's fine to have, it's great to have a club throughout Latin America, for example, yeah. 
but uh, let's not have them be, they, they still need to be some version of white in our sense. And then I, I didn't put this in the book, but you can imagine Mexican Rotarians who go into Texas as, you know, for a conference or an international convention or something. And then they run into Jim Crow laws because their skin's seen as too brown by some mm-hmm. hotel manager. Right. And like, what, what is going on here? And of course, Rotary is not equipped ideologically, institutionally, or any other way. It's not equipped to deal with these concrete points of tension and confrontation. Do you see? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, it's really, so, so I was just going to yeah. say, so the Tokyo story ends up being this kind of grand narrative of the, you know, this, you know, the fact that foreigners are not allowed within the United, within this, this organ, international organization, we are inclusive of these other peoples and nations and races from around the world. And yet right on the doorstep of the United States. And of course mm. it, it, the, the real touchstone touchstone becomes Haiti mm. where um, the opposite story uh, takes root and um, becomes predominant. And that being, you know, uh, again, that, you know, defining and defending these connective tissues of whiteness within international business. Yeah. I mean, it's really good examples of just when the kind of, local and global dimensions of the rotary uh are you know come into kind of conflict and cause oh, totally. great yes. uh, discomfort and panic amongst uh, rotarians um, that's right uh i want to i want to get in two more questions before we wrap up if that's okay um sure. the next question is is partially about sources uh but you know you had mentioned uh in, when i asked you the first question how you would received a rotary scholarship uh uh, early on. And, um, I'm just wondering, you know, first, how do you think this book will be received by Rotarians? I mean, I'd imagine you were thinking about this partially when you're writing it. And I don't know if this is connected to a source issue, but when you were researching uh, during the dissertation and then, and then follow-up research when you're working on the monograph, um, was kind of access to sources partially dependent on, you know, creating your own set of relationship with, with Rotarians and trying to understand how the, how the organization functioned. Um, yeah. Right. Uh, so let's see. Um, what was the first part of your question again? Cause my um, mind was racing for this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just like w- when you were kind of writing the book and working the dis- dissertation, how, how do you, what was your thought on how Rotarians oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. would, cause um, you're quite, you're, you know, you're quite critical in the book. You, we were just kind of, kind of talking about the racial issues. So what's your kind of expectation, I guess? Uh, have you talked to Rotarians? Have they read it uh, yet? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's tricky because, in, and I mentioned this before, uh, like um, that um, Harvard Press wanted me to write a book uh, that was half academic, half trade. And I wanted to write a book that was half academic, half trade, because I think yeah. it's important to write scholarship that's accessible to the public as much as possible. Um, so uh, so given that, I, I wanted to keep in mind writing in a way that would be um, – uh, as accessible as possible to Rotarians, but that doesn't, that should mean that I should sugarcoat it for yeah. Rotarians, right? Uh, I've given uh, uh, many talks to uh, Rotary clubs in the past year, especially uh, on this. And I usually give excerpts from say uh, my chapter six with the Davidsons going through Asia. Mm. And then I kind of try to make the argument, look, I'm talking about the history of Rotary International within a broader context of the of, of glo- U.S. global ascendancy during the first half of the 20th century. And then they kind of get it. But um, as you can imagine, there are, you know, Rotarians tend to be, you know, 
come, they're coming from a, because of their class, their identity, identity is a, you know, a, a, their class identity in, uh, in being a, a basis for their membership in the organization. Hmm. You know, these are usually going to be people that have some kind of education means and resources behind them and so forth. They, they, they're usually real, relatively well-traveled, uh, for example, um, if not very well-traveled in, in many cases, surprisingly. So, um, so, uh, yeah, they, I know it's not going to be what most of them expect because most of them, as you can imagine, um, most of, if not all it, it, formal in, institutional histories of rotary are mm. fairly specific to rotary itself. And they, and they give the, they, they give the history of the organization as if it's almost happening in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. And so I have, that's one major hurdle I have to overcome uh, in my talks and during the Q and A, for example, and I'm sure it's going to be a major hurdle that they're not going to get. A, a lot of them aren't necessarily going to get uh, when re- if they're re- reading this book. But uh, you know, they're surprising. I found them to be surprisingly open to a lot of these arguments, especially because a lot of this is something that happened fifties, a hundred, a hundred and ten years ago, right? Yeah. And to uh, to be to give credit where credit is due, you know, the Rotary International of 2021 is noticeably different in a lot of ways, um, and and has you know has uh, uh, changed for the better, certainly evolved. So I think there there might be, I'm hoping that there will be a sense, especially among uh, um, women who are members of Rotary International, um, who can step back and and fully appreciate and, and many non-white members of Rotary International who can step back and fully appreciate what this book is actually seeking to do. Do you see what I mean? Because mm-hmm. they've had their own fair share, I'm sure, of of dealing with various forms of, you know, of, of privilege and, and, and whiteness or, or whatever. Um, mm. uh, so I'm hoping that it will resonate. Uh, it, if nothing else, it will, it will lay out where the organization came from and, and how it was very much embedded within the period of time that it emerged, right. And and all that that entailed, Um, you know, it was, it emerged out of the context of, you know, the heyday of race and empire in the United States, 1905. Right. Mm. Um, So how could it not reflect the exact same um, uh, idea, racist ideologies and, and so forth as, as the period from which it arose. Uh, that said, when it comes to sources, hmm. um, I remember uh, one of my dissertation advisors, for example, saying that, you know, it's really rare to be able to tell the history of businessmen and corporations because, you know, number one, either they just don't keep records hmm. <laughs> or if they do, they don't allow you access to those records. Hmm. So I was able to get full access to the Rotary Archives because when I first started going there for my dissertation phase, they were quite literally building the archive in anticipation of the 1905 to 2,500 year anniversary. And so I just started going there the year prior for my social science, the SSRC scholarship that I'd gotten to do the research. And um, uh, I remember asking the the archivist at one point, could I, I wanted to look at what they had on the United Nations and she said, well, uh, I can't give you that. Give me about three more months, maybe four or five. And I'm like, what do you mean? And she said, well, we're not up to you yet. And you, I can give you anything on anything that starts with P and before, but we're on, we're going on P to Q to R right now. So talk to me in about three to four months on anything that starts with you. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, it, 
it's just really like it was some raw stuff. But at the time, I was able to get full access to the archives. But since then, you know, they've, you know, over time started clamping down on the um, on the materials and access to the materials and so mm. forth. So I, I, you know, I was I hate to say it and use a phrase, but I guess I was kind of grandfathered in in some ways uh, just by chance. Uh, but then also some of the most important stuff that, for example, that much of the uh, details on the on the Haiti story was found through the Library of Congress in the personal papers of John Barrett, who was yeah. um, kind of a, a central player at, at, in the foreign extension slash extension committee of that time period. And so he was retaining a lot of these communications with rather sensitive material that had, for obvious reasons, been purged or lost or whatever by Rotary long, long before, you know, the 20, 21st century. So that, that required a bit of sleuthing on my part to kind of, cause I knew it was out there. I knew it had to be there, but it took me some, yeah. some time to find it, um, you know, kind of hidden away in the, in, in the library of Congress. And there were some other stuff I came across in the national archives that unfortunately I couldn't, I couldn't really get them into the book because it didn't quite fit the structure of, of the chapters. Right. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, as it turned out, so most of the sources for this, uh, book project are non-state sources, so to speak, rotary mm. or rotary, rotary adjacent. Right. Mm. But, uh, every now and then, you know, I would find something, you know, uh, that was made possible through either the national archives or the library of Congress or something else. Mm. Um, so in, in other words, the sources largely reflect the nature of the organization, organization itself. And no shocker there. It's just, I kind of got lucky in that, in that I was able to get full access to a lot of these sources before they, just as they were being archived and before they were kind of being then, you know, sequestered, so to speak. Yeah. uh, As someone who's kind of, uh, you know, doing in the research phase of his dissertation now, I've been thinking a lot about these questions and uh, you know, a a lot of it's, as you're kind of mentioning, being in the right place at the right time with certain sensitive uh, material, but, but also, as you mentioned, I mean, you can often find uh, some of the really interesting sources uh, in places you perhaps wouldn't expect uh, and kind of triangulate that way. And, and so uh, encouraging at the same time. Um, I want to, end with a question uh, about what you're working on currently, what the next uh, project is. I know, you've, you know, just book has just been published. I uh, probably want to take a much deserved uh, break, but uh, what's, what are you kind of interested in currently? Uh, are you going to continue to look at uh, organizations like the Rotary? Is the next project can be uh, qu- quite different from that? Well, actually uh, one of the projects I was thinking of for several years was um, uh, the Peace Corps. Um, Mm. and, uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. So, um, and probably the main reason is that, I guess it was four years ago, uh, the return Peace Corps volunteers in this part of Florida asked me to give a talk, uh, at, at at their, um, at a fundraiser they were having. And, um, uh, I, I, it it came up in a phone conversation with kind of the, the person organizing that event that, uh, I, I mentioned that back in the 90s, I interned for uh, about five, six months with uh, Harris Wofford, hmm. uh, who was in the U.S. Senate for um, in the early 90s. And Harris Wofford was um, uh, kind of a liaison between the Kennedy administration and uh, the civil rights movement. Um, he was 
um, you know, kind of present at the creation in many ways or at the height of, of uh, post-war liberalism, right? And uh, the Peace Corps was his idea, not really Sergeant Shriver's. And so what I did was I just gave a talk about kind of the backstory to the official story of the origins of the Peace Corps. And then I gave that talk to this organization and they thought, wow, we had no idea. Mm. And I thought, well, I guess they don't. Um, and, uh, you know, what are the odds that I happen to have interned in Senator Wofford's office and <laughs> got to know the guy a little bit and, you know, became aware of and had some, in what, you know, at the time were just informal conversations with him about uh, the origins of the Peace Corps. So uh, it got me thinking about, you know, um, again, it's kind of like I'm taking the template from the RI perspective mm. on things of like, yes, the Peace Corps is, is a state agency, obviously, and kind of a classic expression of modernization um, um, uh, goals and, 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 you know, modernization theory put into practice, so to speak. You know, um, but when I actually looked at the um, in recent uh, in the past year, especially when I started looking at, you know, what what's really been published on the history of the Peace Corps, for example, I, you know, a lot of it is kind of a, a little bit like what you would see with Rotary and a lot of other institutions where they focus on the history of the institution itself. And mm -hmm. it almost as if it's an independent variable from the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, no, I don't think it works that way. So. <laughs> Uh, so that's kind of what I'm looking at is um, an institution like that, an organization like that, uh, and then kind of looking at it through the lens of, of, of um, you know, you know, the heyday of, of, of post-war liberalism, the heyday of, of modernization theories put into practice and so forth. So mm. that's, you know, I would love to be able to pursue that project, but I'm just kind of revving up my, you know, yeah. Yeah. my engines for something like that. Right. Well, great. That that sounds really fascinating. I'll I'll look forward to uh, to reading uh, you know whatever when it materializes into an article and, or book. Um, but just thanks again for agreeing to talk today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Likewise. All right. Take care then. Thank you, Stephen. You have a good day.